We are moving through the book of 1 Corinthians and learning about what it is to be a gospel-centered church and watching, watching the Corinthians and what they were experiencing and going through and learning, and learning as a result from God's Word. You know, it, it is just so important that we soak in the truth that we're going to be looking at this morning and really what we've been looking at for the past year or so as we've gone through this book, because we, um, by default, soak in a culture that soaks in very different things. Um, you probably, some of you are aware, this past week they announced the revelation of this Gospel of Judas, the latest uh, document. If you check on the, on the news uh, and so forth, they'll talk about this. They think it's going to revolutionize how people see early Christianity and, and so forth. And, and um, the Gospel of Judas is a Gnostic Gospel that's been around for quite a while, actually. And the early fathers wrote about it, and it was, it was, wrong. It was heresy. It was a made-up story. But we just, that's the culture we live in, and that's who we are. And there's just all sorts of viewpoints about the Lord and about what He's accomplishing, what He's doing. And it's so important for us to soak in the Word, and not just soak in individual texts and verses, which is so important, but to soak in the whole story and let the, the storyline of the Bible fill us and, and, and influence us and change us. And, and like for those that they teach... Uh, how to recognize the counterfeit they teach by having them recognize the real thing, then when the counterfeit comes along, they can recognize it. Well, for us, we want to get to know the real story. And I think we'll be, as we soak in the real story, be so animated by it and so changed by it, it'll just be automatic in spotting things in ourselves and around us that are different. So with that context, let's go to the Word of God and trust that God is going to do that. He's going to soak us with His truth and teach us and transform us and magnify his name. Let me pray and we'll take a look at the word. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us alone and you've given us your word. You've given us truth. And, and Lord, it's not just to protect us from falseness. It's to direct us to you and your glory and your goodness and your ways. And we just thank you for that. There is something much better here. And so, Lord, we ask you to, to speak to us from your word. And you would speak of your glory and of your ways and it would change our lives and you'd be magnified. So Lord, do, do the extraordinary, do the supernatural through the ordinary and the natural this morning. Use me, Lord. I'm weak. I need you. We are weak. But Lord, you are not weak. You are mighty and you're good and glorious. So make your presence known and speak to us, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Paul has been speaking of the resurrection and all its implications to the Corinthians, a culture very much like our own who needed to hear these truths. And he starts in our section for today in verse 50. I'll read through 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. God's Word. I think this passage would teach us that to be a Christian, to be a Christian is to enjoy Jesus' absolute victory over sin and death. And this victory will soon be completed in our resurrection. To be a Christian is to enjoy His absolute victory over sin and death, soon to be completed in our resurrection. Paul brings in this passage this truth through a a flow of discussion and, and teaching. So let's follow that flow and let's benefit from it this morning. He starts out, he says, I tell you, brothers, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Flesh and blood. Um, What is that? What does he mean when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God? We spent time last week learning that with the resurrection we are going to have physical bodies. They, they in a sense, will be. There will be bones and flesh and and so forth. So what is Paul saying here? Does he mean something different? Did he change his mind from the other verse to this one? No, flesh and blood is a term that speaks of natural humanity. Natural humanity. Just regular mankind. It's used in, throughout Scripture for natural humanity. When, when Peter pro- professes that Christ is God, uh, Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father. So the, it's not a natural thing to understand that Christ is indeed God. Flesh and blood did not do this. So this whole passage, and really the whole book of 1 Corinthians, resonates with this contrast between natural humanity, flesh and blood, and the spiritual man or woman. Supernatural humanity, new humanity in Christ. So, this term flesh and blood is here. We heard earlier on about the natural man, or the, what, what could be translated the soulish man, which is the man created after the image of Adam. The man, the first man, Adam. And, and it's not to say that the soulish man is, is evil in and of himself. They, the, that man, the soulish man, Adam, was created good without sin. Now he fell into sin. But that man, even without sin, is still a different man than the spiritual man, the new man. And God is about creating a new man in Christ. So so in this letter, Paul is addressing this issue with the Corinthians. He's contrasting the natural person and the spiritual. So if you've turned your Bibles back to chapter 2, there's this whole discussion that he has about the natural person. He says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. So there's the natural person, there's the spiritual person. In chapter 3, he says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as natural, limited, and because of the fall of Adam, corrupt humanity. But we learned last week that, that God is doing something in Christ. That is fantastic. What Adam failed to do, Adam was put in the garden with Eve and and he was called to obey and to honor God and to to have dominion over the earth. But to have dominion under the authority of God. 
And, and God said, you can enjoy all these things, but don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they also put the tree of life there. And Adam was to obey God and to honor God as he had dominion. And we know he failed. Adam and Eve sinned against God and they decided to become their own authority. And he was never able to take from that tree of life and to experience eternal life in, in the new humanity that God had planned. And then a second Adam came and that our passage last week looked at that. Do you remember that? Chapter 15, verses 45 and around there. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first Adam became a natural person, a soulish spirit, natural man. But the second one, the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. He gave life. He imparted new humanity to, to all those who would come and trust Him, turn from self. He gives a new humanity. So, what Adam failed to do, Christ accomplished. When he was tempted, like Adam was, instead of saying, yeah, I'd like to take from the tree, and I'd like to be that, he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. I'm not going to assert myself. I'm going to submit to the Father and His truth and obey in all things. So he obeyed perfectly in his temptation. And really, his whole life, he obeyed to the point of death on the cross. And Philippians 2 teaches us, therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Therefore he was raised from the dead and inaugurated, initiated a new humanity. He raised from the dead. He was risen from the dead with a new body and new humanity and a body that's different than natural flesh and blood. It's a body suited for heaven. And now all those who are in him, all those who understand by God's grace that He is indeed God. He has died for our sins and risen again. All those who are in Him experience not only justification, not only God saying, you're forgiven, you're accepted, but will experience the fullness of our new humanity at our resurrection in that final day. So that's what Paul is getting at here. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He goes on, Behold, I, will, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, transformed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body, this body we got from Adam, must put on immortality, the body that we receive in Christ. So, we as natural mankind, will not inherit heaven and the new earth. It's as renewed humanity, the new humanity that we do. So Paul's teaching the Corinthians this, but he says some pretty incredible things in this next section. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Behold, in a sense, I tell you a secret. Listen, I want to tell you a secret. I want to tell you something that has not been clearly revealed up to this point but now is clearly revealed. It isn't that the mystery is indiscernible and always will be a mystery. It just means that it's been a mystery. It's been a secret. It's been somewhat hidden. So Paul says, behold, listen, I want to tell you a secret. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Paul is talking, he's, he's teaching about what God's plan is, what the fullness of His plan is. He's revealing what God has planned from all eternity, and what I would say, and we're going to look at this in a minute, the Bible storyline has been saying through all, all time. 
So earlier on, I talked about stewing and soaking in this culture. Well, we need to soak in this storyline. God has a plan. God is doing something. He's, he's doing something that's fantastic. He doesn't just do things kind of willy-nilly. He didn't just decide, to, like, I'm going to try Adam and then, you know, forget that. I'll try something else over here. There's a plan. There's a story. And for the believer, we are caught up in Christ into the story. And, 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 the, and it makes sense. And it's, and it's a glorious story. When we start to grasp that story, it changes our lives. And that's the, the, the intent of this passage. So he says there's a, a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. We shall be changed from our natural humanity to a new humanity. We shall not all sleep. Paul is teaching on uh, using the word sleep. And that was a euphemism that they used in that day. We don't tend to use it nowadays. That meant physical death. And we shall not all sleep. We shall not all experience physical death. But we shall all be changed. There are some of us who will not experience physical death will, and will be changed. But we, regardless of whether you experience physical death or you're here when the Lord returns, we shall all be changed. It's a little side note I think is important for us as we talk about this. The fact that that we shall be changed when the Lord returns, we'll receive new bodies. The, the question might arise, well, what about those who have fallen asleep? Those who have died, their bodies have expired, where do they go? Are they asleep? Are they experiencing soul sleep? They're just kind of sleeping somehow, somewhere? Maybe in some sort of limbo somewhere or whatever. When Christ returns, then they'll awaken? Paul doesn't teach about that here, but it is in other sections of Scripture, really throughout, not just with Paul, but the whole Scripture, that, that those who, who die in the Lord go immediately to be with Him. They don't receive their new bodies yet, but they go, their souls, in a sense, go to be with the Lord in this, what we could call an intermediate state, until that final day when Christ returns, and they with us will receive new bodies. We know that because of what's said in Scripture, not because it's a good idea that fits neatly into our theology, but in Scripture we see Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the letter following this one, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So he only has two things. It's either in the body or away from the body and with the Lord. You're either in the body now or you're with the Lord. There's no, there's no other thing. So to be away from our body is to be with the Lord. We see it also in other places in Scripture, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Not 3,000 years from now, but today you will be with me. Uh, Jesus speaks of, to the Sadducees who didn't believe in a resurrection, he speaks to them about the fact that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. He says, uh, haven't you read, it says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead or the sleeping, but of the living. He is right now the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are with the Lord and join Him in this intermediate state. And there will be a day when they receive their new bodies with us. What, what, a, what an event that's going to be together with all the saints throughout history receiving new bodies and new life and watching our Savior finish what He started. Watching our God finish what He started. So there's this intermediate state. And we need to understand that. Paul wants to tell of the mystery, though, of the final state for the believer. The mystery that in a moment, 
a twinkling of an eye. We shall all be changed when the trumpet sounds. It will come suddenly. It will not be gradual. It will come suddenly. Suddenly in the twinkling of an eye. In a moment, the Lord will come. There will be a trumpet sound and there will be the finishing of all that He did. There will be no time left at that point to do anything else. It's going to come suddenly. And throughout Scripture we see the, the call to take heed to that reality. We're not going to have you know, something like five weeks or something between when we're told it's going to happen and it happens. It'll just, boom, here it is. The trumpet sound will, will come. And Christ will, will come and we will be caught up with Him to meet the Lord in the air. And we shall be like Him. It's going to happen suddenly. A trumpet call goes out. You ever thought about that trumpet call? What is, what's, what about the, why is it there? What's, when you see something like that in Scripture, it's good to start to dig a little bit. And to particularly dig in the Old Testament too, because remember, it's a story. And it, and it fits together. So there'll be this trumpet call of God that goes out. And the dead will be raised and perishable, and we shall be changed. So there'll be this trumpet call. The Lord Himself will come. If you, if you move in your Bibles over to chapter 4 of First Thessalonians, it speaks of the same thing. It says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So the Lord's going to return. It's going to be dramatic. It's going to be quick. There's going to be one return from what I see in Scripture. He's going to come. It's going to be quick. And that'll be it. That'll be the end. That's when He takes care of everything. That's when He finishes everything. There'll be this trumpet call of God. But let's take a look a little bit at what our Bibles say about this trumpet call because I think the trumpet means different things for different people. And it means the same things for us all, I think. In Scripture, you'll, you'll see other passages that refer to that, but one I think that's prominent is in the book of Exodus. So take your Bibles and turn to chapter 19 of Exodus. I think this is key for understanding this whole thing of the trumpet of God and, and what it's going to be like on that day. The context here is Moses is receiving the law from God. God is descending on Mount Sinai and the people of God have been brought out of Egypt. They've been brought out of this place of, of enslavement. And they've been brought to be God's people. They've been set apart for God. They're receiving His law. They're understanding Him and His ways and His glory. And in chapter 19, verse 16, it says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So imagine this. You're here. You're you're one of the people of Israel. You're down at the bottom of the mountain. Morning of the third day, there's thunder, there's lightnings, there's rumbles, there's a thick cloud on the mountain, it's dark, and there's a very loud trumpet blast, a loud trumpet tone. So that it says, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. 
So the Lord is here revealing Himself to Moses and to the people of Israel. And it's, there's that trumpet blast again. And you, and you can look elsewhere in Scripture. There's this trumpet blast. The trumpet blast fits in with God revealing Himself and revealing His glory. And that's what that last day is going to be like, folks. He's going to reveal Himself in all His glory. It's not just like some you hear some distant, I hear a trumpet somewhere up in the clouds, and all of a sudden you get raptured. Oh, what's happening? It's not going to be like that. It's going to be more like what we see in Exodus. The glory of God is going to be manifest to the whole earth. We're going to see His glory. We're going to behold Him. And we're going to feel like the folks did in, at Mount Sinai. I, don't think, I just don't think any of us could feel otherwise. We're not, I mean, there'll be joy for the believer because we know His blood covers us. We are His. But there'll be fear. It's going to be a glorious day. The trumpet's going to be loud. And we're going to find ourselves, if we're alive, caught up with the saints and if we're with the Lord, we're going to come find ourselves risen from the dead with new bodies, caught up. And it's just going to be an amazing day. We're going to be caught up in the presence of this glorious, holy, awesome God. There, it's going to be joy, but it's going to be reverence. We're going to see His glory. And for those who don't know Him, those who have not come to the place of trusting in Him, but instead are standing on themselves and their own good works, that's the only two options you have. You either can stand on yourself and your own good works, or you can stand on Christ and His good works. You can stand on your, your own sense of your ability to be forgiven, or you can stand on the fact that the Father has pronounced forgiveness in His Son to all who would come to Him. You can stand one of those two places. And on that day, I sure want to be standing here and not over there. For those who are standing in that place, that day will be a terrible day. Scripture talks about it elsewhere. There's going to be fear calling the rocks, hide me. Hide me from the day of wrath. It's a culmination of everything. God at that point is finishing what He started. What He started on the day that He made the whole universe. What He started on the day when He made mankind and placed them in the garden. He will finish on that day. And if we're in Christ, we get to be part of that. It'll be a glorious day. We will be changed. We will see His glory. John 1 John says, we, we will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. The veil will be pulled back. We'll, we will no longer see Him partly. We will see His glory fully, and we will be like Him. And it will be glorious. That's what Paul's declaring to us in this section. That's what the Lord is teaching us in this section. And we are to be changed by that truth. We are to live in light of that truth. It's, that's, it's heavy stuff. We need to stew in it. We need to think on it. We need to get our Bibles out and look in, the, in Exodus and think about this God and what He's like. And think about what it says in 1 Corinthians 15 and, and think this is our inheritance. New bodies, new life. We get to be reconciled to this God and worship Him forever and, and, and enjoy His holiness versus be fearful of wrath. Because, again, His Son has shed His blood and we are forgiven in His Son if we are in His Son. I like the movie Narnia. I think they've done a good job in many ways of representing the truths of Scripture. And you guys probably know the interchange if you read the books. When they're getting, the kids are getting ready to meet Aslan. Aslan is the Christ figure. And Susan says, Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, 
said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. We're going to see this one who is not safe, but is good. And if we are in him, it's going to be a day of joy. It's going to be a mixture of of so many emotions. It's just going to be fantastic. We will see him face to face. He will finish what he started. We will have new bodies. He will finish our salvation, complete it with the redemption of our bodies. Paul goes on. Speaking of this day, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That saying that death will be swallowed up in victory. That saying actually is in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is full of these same truths that are being declared here in 1 Corinthians 15. Again, it's the storyline. God is consistent. And if you look in Isaiah chapter 25, you'll see a section there about this new creation that God is going to make. There's a number of instances in Isaiah like this. And speaking of this new place that God will make and what He will do, this new Jerusalem, this new heaven and this new earth, He says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, rich food, of aged wine well-refined, and He will swallow up. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Does that sound familiar? Revelation chapter 21. Wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. He's going to swallow up death. He's going to overcome death. Isaiah 25 talks about the veil that covers all people. We live in a society. We live in a world. We live in mankind, among, among mankind. And, the, and this veil, this kind of covering of the reality of death is all around us. And really, in many ways, what life is about is trying to escape that reality. And for the, the, the person that's not grounded in these truths... There's a degree of franticness of trying to somehow evade death. Somehow to ignore it. Somehow to deal with it. Seeking youthfulness. Perhaps when death hits you smack in the face, there's just grief and there's loss and there's an inability to cope. There's this veil of death that hangs over humanity. And and there's something about it we know it's just not right. There's the longing for something else. And if we aren't grounded in these truths... We're going to be just like everybody else. It's going to hang on us. And we're going to grieve just like everybody else. And we're going to strive and and try to make something out of this life somehow because we want to evade death. But it says here that death will be swallowed up in victory. That God is going to swallow up. He's going to overcome death entirely. 
It's going to be done away with. This great enemy of mankind, of death, will be overcome. He will be victorious over it on that day. It will be swallowed up. And then Paul goes on, in a sense, with mocking tones. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You're nothing. You, you got nothing on me. You're nothing. Because God has overcome death in His Son. We wait for that day. We long for that day. We must live by the reality of that day. Do you live by the reality of this day? Do you live in the reality that He has conquered and He will conquer? That the victory will be finished by Him? And if you are in Christ, it's your victory? Do you live life in light of that? Does that truth have a bearing on how you see yourself? How you see your your life? How you see others? It should. And that's what Paul's trying to get at here for the Corinthians. This truth is so important. Folks, we've got to let this have a bearing in our lives. We need to stew in it. We need to ask God, would you help us see? Would you help us see the reality, the hope of our resurrection? Would you help it to function in our lives in such a way that we're changed? Because if we're not, we're going to go around... Like the rest of the world, we're going to go around without hope and things like the Gospel of Judas and all that. It's going to confuse us. But if we are soaked in these truths, we will overcome and we will experience the victory even now as we look forward to that. So, so this stuff has everything to do with our lives now. has every relevance to us now. This death and, the, and sin are done away with in, in the Savior, in His resurrection, in our resurrection in Him. It'll be swallowed up. Swallowed up. Do you believe that? Good. I just want to take a minute to pray. Because I think God wants us to believe it more than we do right now. Lord, I just ask you to give us the power by your Spirit to believe that that saying will come to pass. And it is true for us. Death swallowed up in victory. That there is a sure promise and a sure future and hope for us. And there's new bodies. And we will overcome in You. Finally, Lord, I ask just for faith for Your people. As we encounter this truth, faith and change in our lives, O God. Lord, give me the ability. I'm just... Lord, give me the ability to express these things. Give us the ability to grasp what is hard to grasp. To be changed. Mm. Mm. See, God wants these truths to operate in our life right now. He wants this truth to meet you right now where you're at and what you're going through. He wants to change your view of life. He wants to change my view of life. He wants to take what is a normal way of thinking and turn it upside down. Because that's what this truth does. It turns our lives upside down. It causes us to see things entirely different. It causes us to weigh our, our lives and plan our lives and live our lives entirely different. When we understand that we have a Redeemer and He lives, He's risen, and He's returning, and we're in Him, and He's going to finish what He started, and He's going to use this now in preparation for that end. Life changes when we see that. And we must see it. 
And He wants to show His glory to us and through us by these things. Death and sin are going to be swallowed up. Paul goes on, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sting of death is sin. Death's ability to infect us comes through sin. And we see that again with Adam because Adam sinned. And Romans chapter 5 talks about this. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So this venom of sin impacted all of us. And through that came death. The sting of death is sin. The reason we die is because of sin. The reason that we don't experience the new humanity is because of sin. There's spiritual death, there's physical death. They both come ultimately as a result of sin. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. That, that's like a whole message right there. The power of sin is the law. What does that mean? If you study the Word, and you'll see that the law, though it is good, actually works in conjunction with sin to work evil. Romans 7, What then shall we say? The law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You know, many people conceive of Christianity as following the law. That to be a Christian means to turn my life around and start following the law of God. And it's not that really at all. There's a, the law has an impact. We'll get to that. But it's really not that. And if we conceive of Christianity, maybe you're here this morning and you are kind of an observer of Christianity. And, and, and you're very welcome here. And we hope you can observe all you want and be blessed. But you're an observer and you're looking in and, you're, and perhaps your conclusion is, I think this Christianity is really all about law. And so if I'm, I'm to become a Christian, for me what it means is I've got to reform my life. And I've got to start following the law. That's really what it is. It's, it's either do the law, follow the law and all that stuff and be miserable, or be my own person and be happy. And that's perhaps how you conceive of it. And I would say that both those things are, are wrong conceptions. For the law does not bring life. And Christianity is not about following the law. Matter of fact, it says that the power of sin is the law. That chapter in Romans 7 says that, the, that our sinful nature couples with the law and says, what, what can I do to disobey this thing? That's how it works. You guys have seen it, haven't you? Anyone have kids? Right? If you have kids and you tell them don't do this, what do they do? They do it. Or they get up as close to the line as they can. Stay in the yard. While I'm in the house working, you stay in the yard. Don't go outside the yard. When you go outside, you check on them. Where are they? They're on the edge of the yard and their face is maybe up against the fence or they got half their foot out. Somehow, how much can I get away with? That's human nature. That's how the law works. So if you're a believer this morning and you're thinking that the path to holiness is the law, you're wrong. The path to sin and worse sin is the law. So if you want... If you want to be sinful, if you want to fail as a Christian, if you want to be self-righteous, if you want to find out how bad you are, try to follow the law. That's how the law works. Now, the law is good. It's right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's great stuff. 
But if you try to do that, and you think this is all what Christianity is, you're going to fail. God has designed it that way. The law reveals our sin. So the sting of sin is death. Sin stings us. We have sin as humans, and it leads to death. We're sinful by nature. We sin, and therefore we die. And then the power of sin is the law. The law added to that actually empowers sin. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is about being in Christ and being in Him and experiencing His victory in His life. And yes, that life as it works in us makes our lives conform to the law to look like how the law describes it. It makes us like Him because He's holy and the law is holy and the law teaches us about what that holiness is. Yes, it's important, but the law does not bring holiness. Christ does. Christ in us. The victory that we have. The victory that will be finished on that day when we receive new bodies. He is the one who gives us the victory. You don't give yourself the victory. He gives us the victory. We said earlier that to be a Christian is to enjoy His victory. It's His victory. He did it. He earned it. He did everything Adam didn't do. He did everything we haven't done. He earned it and He was raised from the dead victorious. And He experienced the full reward of His obedience. He experienced total new humanity. He's our brother. He's the first fruits. And all of us who are in Him, who say, I'm not going to rely on the law on my sin, I'm going to rely on Him, the victorious one, will get what He gets, what He has, what He enjoys now. And it will happen dramatically. It will happen in the twinkling of the eye. It will happen when the trumpet comes. And it will be finished. And we will not on that day say, I did it, I did it, I did it, I know I did it. We'll say, you have done it. And I can stand and celebrate this day because of you. So Paul finishes his section. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Brothers, in light of this truth, in light of this sure truth, live your lives this way. Steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Live your lives differently, radically differently. Standing on something that is unshakable. Enduring trials differently than the world does. This truth changes everything. And that's how it's supposed to affect us. As we wait. There's a number of ways it affects us. One way it affects us is it gives us hope. And hope is powerful stuff. It gives us hope. We know there's something good that awaits us that's very good. And when something good is awaiting us, and we know it, we live differently today. When we know at the end there is something good, at the end of the week, there's something good waiting for you, will that change how you do the week, how you endure the week? If you are having a bad day, but you know that on Saturday you get to go to Bermuda or something, is that going to change your week? Are you going to be thinking, hey, I can deal with this? That's how hope works. That's how the truth of this is to work in our lives. We are to fix our eyes on this Reality for the believer ahead of us and endure suffering. Hope is to help us get through life. It's to function strongly in our lives. So that's one way it works. On that past Monday, I was, uh, we were grinding stumps with this big machine. It's like a lawnmower thing. And, and, it was, and I rented the thing thinking I'd only do a half day. It took eight hours. It was brutal. It was brutal work. And, and that's, I have an injured knee. I injured my knee more because of it. And how did I get through that? Well, I knew I only had so much time. And then the rental was out. But I knew I had so much time to get this done. So I endured 
the hardship and I worked hard because the t- it was going to be over and then I wouldn't have any more time. For us similarly as Christians, we can endure difficulties knowing it's not just that we're going to be done. <laughs> the hardship will be over, but much more, there'll be a reward. There'll be new bodies. There'll be new heaven and new earth. There'll be joy. They'll be beholding the glory of God and all that it is. Moses, when he came down from that mountain, his face was shining. He saw God in all his awesomeness. He beheld him and he, and he experienced the glory of God even in his face. That's what we'll be like every day, all the time. It's far better than anything else here. And, and we need to have this truth function that way because, frankly, we live as if this stuff isn't true. We live as if the other things about life are more true. We live as if the Gospel of Judas and these other truths in our culture is more true than this. We do. And we need this to operate in our lives and to change us and to, to live that according to this truth and to be radically different. To be a Christian means to be radically different. It doesn't mean we're, we're not, I mean, we're still like humanity. We still enjoy the same things other people do. It doesn't mean to draw back from culture at all. I'm not saying that. But it means to be in the world and not of the world. To be very different in our experience. So this truth should impact us in terms of hope. It should impact us in terms of trial. Recognizing that God uses trials. And it should impact us too in what Paul says in terms of abounding in the work of the Lord. Galatians 6 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Colossians 3, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a reward. It includes getting a new body. It includes inheriting the new kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth. There's a reward for what we do. So whether, whatever it might be, as we do it for the Lord, there's a reward. That is a sure thing. If the band could come up as we close. So we are to stand on this truth. We are to stand on Christ, our victor. We are to stand recognizing we are forgiven. And we have a future. And I think of the picture of a son who is the son of a wealthy father. He knows his father has lots of resources, but not only that, he knows his father loves him. And he wears the family ring. He knows he's a smith or whatever. And he knows he's an inheritor of that. How will that son live his life? Very differently than the son that is unaware of those things, that isn't in that place. That son will live his life boldly, I think. Confident. We are called to the same because we are inheritors in Christ. And we are to live our lives boldly. We are to abound in the work of the Lord. John Piper, in a message that's somewhat related that Danny shared with me, it's a wonderful message, draws from this truth and says, basically, do something crazy for God because of this truth. Do something crazy. Do not live life in a conservative way. Don't live life thinking, how can I conserve and protect myself and make the most of this life? But rather, live life in a crazy way. And there's all sorts of ways that that can be. And I'm not, I mean, it's going to mean different things for different people. For some people, it means you're going to leave your career. You're going to leave your job. And you're going to, you're going to serve overseas. Or you're going to serve in the States in some sort of role that, where you don't make as much money and you don't have the same things. That's going to be crazy for you. Others, craziness is just going to be something simple like, I'm going to start to intentionally pursue relationships in the church. I'm going to step outside my comfort zone and start to get to know people. 
that whole range of what it is to be crazy, but that this truth should have that impact on us. It should drive us to say, why should I not take a risk for God? Why should I not feel like I can just go and try things because I'm forgiven and He is guaranteed that this will happen. He will return and I am in His. I am in Him. I'm His. So why not live life boldly for Him? Risking for Him. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for the victory that you've won and the victory you will finish. Oh Lord, how we long for that day. How we groan inwardly. And Lord, your word says that even all creation is groaning inwardly looking forward to that day. Help us to live looking forward to that day. Help us live life now anticipating that victory, the finishing of that victory. Lord, I pray for for those who are believers this morning that, Lord, we would live radically for You because You have won the victory for us and we are forgiven, we're free, and we have a future. And Lord, for those who don't know You this morning, Lord, I pray that they would consider You and consider their own lives and their own efforts as rubbish to be left behind to invest themselves in You, to trust You, to find You their righteousness, You their champion, You their victory, You their future. We thank You, Lord, that You have done this. And Lord, may we this week go forward to worship You, to rest in You, and rejoice in You. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close in song.